If you would, take your Bible and open it to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Been in this passage for some time. It is a joy to return and to consider and to allow our faith to be tested and stretched and grown because of the Word of God. Friends, there's nothing intuitive about the Christian life to sinners like you and I. Understanding how to live to the glory of God, and I'm so thankful for the songs that we sang this morning. I'm so thankful for the encouragement that they bring in the difficulty of life and the promises that we're reminded of uh, by singing. But there's this working out in our lives, the reality of what we sing, and it comes through an understanding of the Word, through understanding the truth theologically well. And we learned last week, saw, how the love of God cannot be separated from theology, from the truth. There's a lot of people, and even some noted theologians, who will make arguments um, that you really have, give even an illustration I've heard of, there's really kind of two wings to the airplane. One wing is uh, loving others well and the way that you act uh, out what you believe, and, and the other wing is um, the actual theological foundation that you have. I think it's a fine illustration. The problem is, is it juxtaposes two things, and it's not how it works. That theology and how we live are so intertwined that you could never... It's like, you know, guys, the orange uh, extension cord that you have in your garage right now that is a wadded up mess, you're never going to get that undone. It's never going to happen. Now, some of you are sitting there, you, you're, you're the kind of guys that have everything on the spool, and it's all, in the, and we, we love you too. That's great. I'm happy for you. I, I have five children, so my orange cords get knotted up. I don't know why we're there. We're going to move on. Theology and the love of God go hand in hand. Our belief, our orthodoxy, and our uh, uh, living that out, our orthopraxy, what we practice, are intertwined. They're, they're, they're one in the same. And so we have read from this passage in 1 John chapter 4, what, what is a theological high point? Verses 9 and 10, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He first loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. But then immediately look at what John does. He takes us to verse 11 where we will be today. And he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, and He has loved us, and it's important for us to understand that love in theological uh, categories. If He's loved us in this way, we also ought to love one another. I don't know about you, but when I come to those particular words, there's a sense of smallness, a sense of of inadequacy, a sense that I have failed to live according to this standard in my life. And I think we all have failed to one degree or another. You see, what we have in verse 11 is, I think, the most profound test of the Christian faith. 
It's fine to say that you love... Friends, there are many, many, many people who hold to strong theology, who could talk circles around anyone in this room this morning, myself included, about doctrine. But sadly, that many of those types of individuals don't actually love the bride of Christ, those around them that God has given them to love. You see, our theology really meets its testing when we walk into church on Sunday morning. And my, what a test it is. We all come broken. We all come with sin. We all come with burdens. And only the Lord can bear those things. So our theology must be matched with our practice. Again, this is a, a grand uh, theological declarations that have been made in this um, in this passage up to this point, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of sin, the, the person of Christ, the Trinity, the incarnation, the atonement, the resurrection, uh, the ascension of Christ being at the right hand and interceding for us. Isn't that a fantastic reminder? Doesn't that just fuel you all throughout the week that you have someone intercessing, and not just someone, you have the God of the ages, the, the, the one who hang, hung on the cross uh, for the penalty of your sin is interceding on your behalf at this very moment. Those weighty doctrines are there. But the question that verse 11 poses to us this morning is do those weighty doctrines come home to roost in how we relate to one another? Do those doctrines mean something to us? You see, these, uh, this particular verse in verse 11 really, again, tests whether we really hold our theology um, with passion. If we don't love the body of Christ, the answer that John would give us is that we don't have a right theological undergirding, or at least we might have the theology, we just don't know how to use it. I don't know if you've ever noticed the reality that the New Testament seemingly takes us to the heights that the, the authors of the New Testament, especially the pastoral letters, and I think I've told you this before, but I have a firm belief that the way the Bible is written is that there are shadows and types in the Old Testament. And then we have a, a picture in the Gospels of Jesus' actual ministry. And here is our Savior, Redeemer, our King, living amongst us. And, and what glorious uh, Gospels they are. And then as we lean in to the pastoral letters, there's this sharpening, there's this clarifying, there is this um, picture of what really good theology and good doctrine and good truth and the way and the doctrine that we should live on, what that really looks like. And and in various forms and various different styles, those pastoral letters ultimately will do this uh, taking us to the heights of understanding grand truth. And then it's like bringing us to the brink of a cliff. And that's what verse 11 is this morning. And just giving us a little nudge back into the real world. We should have grand, a grand vision of, of, of the Gospel. We should have deep theological understanding so that when we walk out into the world and when we walk in here, when we live together in the body of Christ, that we have an understanding of how it is that we should actually 
live. And so this verse causes us to come down to the dust and be uh, forced to examine ourselves. It forces us to come down from the majesty on high and to be faced with the reality of a world that lies in the power of the evil one and what that means in the body of Christ. You see, the Christian gospel is not merely truth to be contemplated. The the Christian gospel isn't just something to lodge in our intellect and stay there. The, The truth of the gospel is intellectual and there is a learning component a a redeeming a reclaiming of our minds uh, and submitting ourselves to the scripture and to the teaching of the church Uh, those things are there but they don't just stay there they move on into patterns into trajectories of life do you remember that moment the Mount of Transfiguration, and our Lord took Peter and James and John aside. They went up into the mountain together, and there He was transfigured before Him. Moses and Elijah appeared on the mountain and uh, began to speak. And, and what happened was the three disciples there were transfixed with what was going on in front of them. They were mesmerized by the reality of Moses and Elijah and Christ being transfigured. And this is amazing. And they turn and they say, we should set up camp and we should stay here. Uh, we should live in this forever. This is fantastic. And what does Jesus say when they... They lean in with that thought. (laughs) Paraphrasing here, he says, no, we're not staying here. He says there are individuals down. Jesus understood. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, I think in more profound terms than any of us ever will. And that is that we are of God, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. There in that transfiguration. And as his disciples are saying, let us stay here and behold your glory and see all of this. Jesus says no, because the world is in the power of the evil one. And there is yet ministry to do. There are things that we are to set our lives toward. The same thing has happened if you turn just one page, depending on how your Bible is laid out, maybe you're there already, and and in verse 3, or excuse me, chapter 3, we are given this, see what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. What a grand narrative, but immediately John brings us back to application, he brings us back to an understanding that our, com- our contemplation of the truth should lead us to a living out of the truth. Christian theology doesn't leave us on the mountaintop. It brings us down into the grittiness of people's lives. Jesus was the one who was the friend of publicans and sinners. The one who said we, we must go. We must Continue on and do what the Father has sent me to do. You see, love, the the love of Christ. There there is a kind of love in our day and age and in every day and age that is just theoretical. It's just talk. It's just thinking. It's all intellectual. That's not Christian love. 
The love of God is an active, practical thing. It, it does things in the world. The love of God is an action. In, in verse 9 and 10, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. His love wasn't something ethereal, encapsulated in the heavens that He just uh, ruminated over, that He just meditated on. God sent His Son into the world. So the love of God and the truth of God and the actions of God are things that must never be disconnected from one another. We must always live in light of the truth that we actually believe. Now I'm afraid this morning that something has happened to all of us to one degree or another. And that is that in the, in the world that lies in the power of the evil one, please do not understand that phrase to merely mean all of the hyper-worldly things that happen outside of the church. It is that. But it's not just the big, marquee, top-name sins that you can think about. I, I think that part of what the world being in the power of the evil one means, and it means this this morning during this hour in many places around our nation and around the world, is that people come with a false understanding of what it is to worship the living God. We come with a functional moralism. The idea, you know, that... You, you just absorb from the culture. If you do what is right, if you don't sin and you straighten up and you do all of the right things, then God will bless you. The problem is you're dead in your trespasses and sins. And apart from the grace of God, you can never do what would bring honor and glory to God. You are never self-sufficient. One of the greatest masterpieces of Satan's work in the world is self-centered religion that's hypocritical and that hinges on something we do not upon the God of the ages. And so many buy into those things and say, yeah, but a moralistic worldview is better than not having one at all. Not on Judgment Day. It's not. Without the grace of Almighty God, that day will be just as difficult for the moralist as it will be for anybody else. Amen. The Bible does not teach us, it does not give us an expression saying that, that, that we should just come and, and, and live a better life. That, 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 that there's so much in our culture that says, wouldn't you like to just have a, a, a better life, an abundant life, a, a blessing in your life? Wouldn't you like to just do the right thing and God will bless you for having done that right thing? Oh, friends, there's certain categories where that may be true, that we should be obedient, but not without an understanding that we need the grace of God to even begin to think in terms of obedience. Without faith, nothing pleases God. New the New Testament never does this kind of moral, moralistic teaching. It rather teaches holiness in the way that it does here. It doesn't say you just need to look, be a little bit better. It says in verses 9 and 10, you were hopeless in this world. Christ had to condescend and step off of the, uh, His throne and be born into a manger and to live among the muck and the mire and the difficulty of this life. He left the glories of heaven. Why? So that you might have new life. 
And you, would, would we dare have the audacity to just say, but well, let me just add a little bit of my goodness to that. That is the epitome of Satan's work. To believe that we can add anything to what we have received from the hand of God and the person and the work of His Son. And so what the Bible does is what it does always and what it's doing here. When John writes, in all of these theological categories, what the Son of God means and what He did and how He has come to accomplish both the dispelling of the lies of Satan and the paying of the penalty of our sin, and then immediately from those theological standpoints, from the truth that has been uh, delivered once, to the, once for all to the saints, truth matters because it is what God has delivered. It is what He has spoken. And he is the only one that is true. So, so those things are leveled at us and then immediately the apostle says, Beloved, if God has so, so loved us, if this gospel is true, if this is a reality, if Jesus really did come to drag you out of the darkness of your own sin and condemnation and to bring you to marvelous light, then we also ought to love one another. I love the word ought. You know what it tells me? It tells me that 2,000 years ago, when John wrote this letter to the church, they ought to have loved one another in the same way that God had loved them in sending His Son. And what that means is they weren't doing it. And you know what has changed in our generation? Not a whole lot. I don't mean they weren't doing it at all. But there is always a growth. There is always, should always, when we come to this passage, if we give all of our lives to this one ought, this side of heaven, there will continually be areas where we are called to grow in loving one another in the body of Christ. If we actually believe the doctrine that we say we believe, we ought to love one another. And what that ought does is it gives us room. It acknowledges the reality that left to our own devices, left to our own abilities, left to our own will and our own thoughts and our own intuitions, we would fall far short. And we do even yet. You see, what this ought does is it tells you that you have no right to be living any other kind of life if you call yourself a Christian. If you call yourself a Christian and you say, I believe in the Trinity, I believe in the resurrection, I believe in the um, atonement and in the works of Christ for my salvation, I believe in the afterlife, and you can espouse all of the doctrine that you want, but then you say, but I really don't love the church at all. Or you say, I believe all of those things, but I'm not going to give any effort. I'm just not going to do it. John comes and says, you have no right to do that. You have no right to cling to the doctrines that have been delivered once for all to the saints if you don't actually love the saints. And if you don't continually grow in that direction. Beloved, are we not all in the dust at this moment? Do you not understand what I was talking about earlier? The heights of euphoria in, in, in verses 9 and 10 theologically. And when we understand that one word ought just takes us all and goes, you're done. 
But for the grace of God, we would be done. But all of the doctrine that we've been given, we cling to and we know that He has redeemed us. And so we can continue to move forward in that ought. We can continue to grow and ask God for His goodness, goodness and benevolence to be poured out in our lives. That the truth of God would not be something static and intellectual and something that we just argue about, but it would be something that we long to live out in our relationships one with another. Again, this is repeated all throughout the New Testament. The, the New Testament writers come and they build strong doctrines. Paul is more linear. And then he will have a word like but or therefore or yet. And he will pivot and turn us from grand theology into application and orthopraxy. If God so loved us, then we ought love one another. Friends, everything, it, we live in a generation where the truth is compromised, where people say theology doesn't matter. I've had people within the past several weeks tell me, you major too much on theology and doctrine. Friends, everything in the New Testament is spoken of in terms of truth. And we should be grateful for that. Amen. We should be grateful that the Lord of the heavens has not insinuated things to us. He's not just made mere suggestions. He's given us solid footing to live our lives upon. Amen. We don't have to take a poll. We don't have to wait for Nancy Pelosi's next press conference. Praise God. Or any other politician. I'm not picking on... But... but, but we, we, we don't have to live on, on the, the, the ebb and flow of the thoughts that is in the world of the evil, uh, that is in the power of the evil one. We live on the substantive truth of the Word of God. And it must, by necessity, if we are understanding it rightly, lead us to love one another and to be gracious and patient with one another and to understand that this only comes by grace. You see, in the New Testament, you're not exhorted just to not sin and to live a good life. Rather, the New Testament comes and the writers say to you in various forms and fashion, Beloved, you are not your own. You were bought by the precious blood of the Lamb. Now you ought to live this way. You see, there is always the uh, indicative before there's the imperative. There is always what God has done, what He has accomplished, what He is triumphant in, and then there is the implication of how that uh, works out in your particular life. See, I wonder why it is that the church in our generation objects to the truth altogether. Why it is that the church is constantly looking at new fads and new particular uh, trends in the church and avoiding the truth. Because if we, there's always this argument, well, we ought to live this way. I mean, if you listen to a liberal theologian, they are going to have an orthopraxy. They're going to tell you, you ought to do and fill in the blank. And ultimately, people that find themselves in the pulpit that give you the ought without giving you the truth are deceivers trying to just use you for their own end. 
That's why it's so important to live on the truth. You see, the Bible comes and says, if you say you believe then, then you must live like that. There is no way of saying you believe this unless you behave like that. A New Testament teaching on how we live our lives in sanctification is always done in that manner. It always leads us to the joyful life in spite of of the world around us. Remember, this entire letter is written, John is writing, that we might have joy and fellowship with God, that we might have satisfaction in this life in spite of the world and its current condition. And what John is saying is that if you try to live that life clinging to doctrine, clinging to theology, but you don't actually love one another, there will be no actual joy. It will not happen. It can't happen. But here is the difficulty. We come to church. We gather with other saints. We get to know people well. And all of a sudden, lo and behold, we find out that they are sinful. And that there are things that are disordered in their life. Or maybe we just don't like them. That does happen. Oh, come on, y'all. Everybody's got a little grin like, I don't want anybody to see that I'm grinning at this. We all know it's true. There's just that, I mean, in our closest relationship, Sarah, we've been, Brian and Libby have been happily married for 27 years. Is it today? Libby, is there anything that irritates you about Brian? Now, if you answer no, next week's sermon's going to be online. There's those things that rub against one another where we don't love one another well. And you all do, and I'm thankful for God's grace and kindness in 27 years of marriage. That is a gift, and I'm thankful for that. But even in our closest relationships, we need to be spurred on to love one another in light of what has been done for us. You see, when we come against people who irritate us and who cause us to stumble in our living out the gospel, we need to come to verse 11. This is God's gift to you and I. And remind ourselves, beloved, if God has so loved us, we ought also to love one another. We come and we remind ourselves that there is this regulating truth of the gospel and we need to apply it to every situation in our life. We we don't just come into church and love people when we feel like loving them. And that is the great lie that is perpetrated on the church and, and how many churches, I think, are led based off of feeling. Uh, We want you to feel a certain way so you'll do something. The Bible really doesn't lead you in in that way. The Bible doesn't take a hold of your affections first, necessarily. The Bible gives you clear understanding of what Christ has done for you, how you are to live in light of what He has done for you, and then as you are obedient, often the feelings will follow. But this isn't... Listen, John does not say, Beloved, if God has so loved us, we ought to feel in love with each other all the time. 
He doesn't say that. He says you ought to do it. You ought to love one another. So the question then that I know you're asking is how do we do that? Well, they do it by reminding themselves again of this truth. God has so loved us. He has sent His Son. There are theologies that I need to understand about His death, burial, and resurrection and what that means in my life. And then I need to look at the person I'm struggling with. And I need to allow that truth, the if God has so loved, and that is true, He has loved in this way, and I need to look at the other individual and I need to consider them in light of this reality. You see, the problem in our lives is we look at other people and we immediately, and our culture is filled with victimization mentalities, but it's this twisted, morphed view of victimization that misses what we are really immersed in, and that is sin and bondage to Satan. And so we look at other people and we go, listen, if so-and-so would just fill in the blank, if they would just live a little bit better, if, if they would just stop doing this, if in our conversations they would continue to do X, Y, or Z, whatever it is that you think you should, they should do, the, the way we often come at relationships and loving one another in the body of Christ is to put our expectations on other people and say, you ought to be that way, and when you finally arrive one day, then I can love you. But the gospel interrupts and says, now wait a minute. Stop for a minute and think about yourself. If God so loved you, Christian, that's what this verse does. The first thing this verse does is it brings you face to face with who you are. And can I tell you something? The second that you are in that category of thought, you're back in theology. You're back to thinking about who am I? What does the Bible say about me? And what the Bible says about you is that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That you at one time were sold under sin and that only by grace could you ever hope for a relationship with Christ. And in fact, after salvation, after being brought to saving faith, there is still indwelling sin. And there are still trespasses and difficulties and, and things to wrestle against in the flesh. The old man is still there. The old nature, to some extent, is still something you have to wrestle with. And all of this, is really encapsulated into one word that we use in the culture the wrong way over and over and over, and that word is self. You go to the bookstore, to the newsstand, or to the internet, and you will hear that the most important things are that you will have self-love, self-trust, self-exaltation, uh, that you will uh, be self-assertive. Uh, assertive. But can I tell you something? All of that lends in the direction of being self-centered, self-conceited, self-indulgent, self-pleasing, self-seeking, self-pitying, self-sensitive, self-defiant, self-sufficient, self-conscious, self-righteous, and self-glorifying. The reason that we don't love one another well, the reason that the ought has not come to full fruition in this lifetime is because of self. Because we put ourselves at the center 
of all things. Self-sufficiency and self-righteousness are really what it means to be wretched in this world. Those are the bottom line things that we struggle against. And Paul writes in Romans chapter 7, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? How can I get away from this wretched, ugly, self-centered way of living? Well, the answer to that question is found in verses 9 and 10. That we would understand the Gospel. That we are not the center of the entire universe. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. It's incredible that God loved us and condescended to us and came to us not because we got ourselves together, but because He endeavored to love us for His own glory and to bring a bride to His Son. And what joy that should give us as we look at the individual uh, that we're struggling with, maybe in the church or maybe in the family or maybe in our workplace, and, and we consider how do we love well. Well, the first thing that we have to do is we have to reckon with the reality that we are much like the person we have a problem with. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone where they're talking about another person's sin and they say, I would never. I had a professor in college, so thankful for this man. And there was another professor who had been caught in great uh, gross immorality. And so he was removed from teaching at the school. And sitting around a lunch table, uh, there was another gentleman that asked, how stupid can you be? And this brother professor of mine said, go look in the mirror, that's how stupid you can be. Man, that was great. I don't know that that lives up to the full ought, but it was great. You see, the reality is when we, when we level, and this is why. This is why the doctrine of total depravity matters so much. Because you will never love the way that you ought to love until you understand that you were not lovable without the grace of God. We ought to understand theologically that we were not spiritually sick in our trespasses and sins. We were Thanatos, dead. And that impacts the way that we love one another. Because the individual that's outside of the body of Christ, who is dead in their trespasses and sins, it changes the way that we in fact look upon them. And the moment that we get in view who we really are and what our self really is, I can't tell you the number of conversations I've had where somebody will try to tell me, Jay, you just need to believe in yourself more. And I used to buy into that garbage, but I know me enough now, and I want to vomit when people say stuff like that. I know me too well to believe in me. I know that I need the grace of God. When we come to a right understanding, uh, then we can look at ourselves and we can cry with John Bunyan when he said, He that is down need need fear no fall. He that is low, no pride. We need to humble ourselves. Or Charles Spurgeon said this, If a man thinks ill of you, don't be angry, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. And that is so true. 
When we have a self sober, uh, under, uh, a sober understanding of self, and that we were so needy, and we are so needy, and that we depend upon the grace of God, then it becomes a joy to reflect that grace to others. Beloved, says John, we need to see ourselves in the dust. We need to see ourselves low. We need to see ourselves spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins prior to Christ if we are going to love one another. Beloved, says John, if God so loved us, you must start with a low view of self. If God has so loved us, we ought also to love one another. And only when we've captured a right view of self, then can we pivot and turn and look at the other person. And what a difference it makes when we have ourselves rightly in view. And the Bible always gives us the image of God in ourselves so we can't sink too low. But it also gives us the picture of our wretched depravity so we can't ascend to the heights. You see, here's what happens. Here is what happens. When we have conflict, almost always, not always, there are some, I think, areas of victimization and things that maybe are, are, are peripheral to this, but the anger that comes out of it is often the same. When we are struggling in relationships and we are angry at another individual and we can't seem to get past all of their inadequacies and their idiosyncrasies and all of the things that just, Sarah and I call it squeaking. You know, when I'm, when I'm doing something that's driving her up the wall, she will say, you know, you have a pair of tennis shoes and as you walk and they're watery, they make that squeak, squeak, squeak and you just want to punch the person next to you. Now, squeaking. As, as, as we squeak, as we have those difficulties, what is happening is we're looking down on the other person. We are standing with a grand view of ourselves and we're saying, boy, I wish you would measure up. But when we come to the Bible and the Bible lays us low, it's not laying us low for no good purpose at all. It's laying us low that we look up to those who are around us and we realize, oh my word, I'm a sinful wretch just as they are. I'm in need of, of, of grace in the same way that they are in need of grace. So when the love of God is operating in our hearts, when we believe the gospel and the reason and reason out the meaning of this love, what happens is that we see the other person rather than the thing that the other person is doing. That's the problem throughout so much of church history and in so many churches is we see problems we don't see people. We look at individuals and we see the thing that they're doing that we don't like and we, we major on that from our arrogance instead of coming humbly and seeing what God sees, a soul, an individual made in the image of God who is worthy of love. Friends, that's the only way that God could have ever loved you and I. And we learned this several weeks ago. He could not have looked at everything that we were and what we did. Even the best of our works are as filthy rags in His sight. He couldn't look upon the things we do. But He looked upon us and out of sheer grace and mercy alone, He pursued us by His love. He saw us. He loved us. And He dealt with the sin. You see, when we look at things in light of the glorious love of God, we can look at other individuals 
And we can see past the offensive action. And we can see the reality in the other person's life that they are a victim in some... And I know as soon as I start to talk in terms of victimization that people will rise up and say, but we're still morally culpable and all of that. And that's true. But friends, there are, when we see someone who is in sin, even inside the body of Christ, who are regenerate, we shouldn't look down upon them. We should look at them and realize that in some area of their life, they are being deceived by false teaching, by a false understanding of what the Gospel means, by a false perception of who Christ is and what His life means in our lives. And we should have pity upon them. For those who are outside of the church, who are dead in their trespasses and sins, and who brutalize one another, and who slander one another, and who hurt one another, we shouldn't look upon them with contempt and say, well, I would never do that. We should look upon them and say, but for the grace of God, there go I. Father, would you do what only you can do in the life of this person and set them free from the, not only the penalty of sin, but also the power of sin, that they might be renewed into the likeness of Christ. When we see ourselves rightly, then we see others in light of the Gospel. And we no longer struggle to come and to seek to love well and, and to seek to humble ourselves Think about an individual. I can tell you, I'll probably embarrass him. But moms, you might understand this a little bit more than dads do. Uh, Robbie was just several months old, wherever he is this morning. And he, you know, completely messed himself in his crib. And I, you know, opened the door to his little room. I loved my son. But the wall of fragrance washed over me. And then he stands up and is just covered head to toe in bleh. And I looked at him. I still saw my son. But I I loved in the pharisaical type of way. I don't want to get dirty with that. Mom! And she just comes in singing in the rain, cleans him up, because what does Sarah see? Not the mess surrounding her son, but her boy. The one that she genuinely loves. And so it is in our own individual lives with one another. Friends, we all have stuff to deal with. The question is, will we humble ourselves in light of the Gospel and actually walk in love? It's interesting how Jesus tells us that the way the world will know that we are His is not that we just espouse erudite theology, though we should. We should pursue the truth. The way that the world will know that we are in His hands is the love that we have one for another. So every time that we see difficulty in one another's lives, you know what we can do in light of the Gospel? We can see that as a point of redemption, an area where we can lean in and love past that particular issue. We don't have to ignore it. We can address it in the Gospel. But we don't have to tear one another apart. We don't have to tear one another down. Because the reality that we have come to know The reality that we live in every day of our life in light of this gospel, this ought. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. 
that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. As we see ourselves clearly, we see others in light of the Gospel, and then we realize that there is this camaraderie of grace in the body of Christ. That the only thing that keeps us together is the very thing that brought us together in the first place. And that is the mercy and grace of a loving God who saved us not because of us, but in spite of us. And all of that for His own glory. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come this morning so thankful for Your mercy in our lives. Father, we come again thankful this morning for Allison and Tim and they're joining the body here. I'm prayerful that we will love them well in the years ahead and and likewise them to us. I I, I thank you for the Lyra family. I'm so thankful to see the gospel at work in their home and the lives of their small children. I pray, Father, that they would continue to grow in grace in the days ahead. Thank you for Erica and Ramon. I just lift them before you this morning again and ask for healing grace in their life. Father, I'm so thankful for those who have been in this church for years, who have loved one another and sacrificed for one another and come alongside of one another. I'm so thankful for the truth that you have given us to steward, and I pray that we would do that well, loving one another and believing what you have delivered. I pray, Father, that we would never negotiate either side of that equation, but that we would see them as one and the same, and that we would live our lives together, not for our own glory, but only for yours.